welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. On this week's program, 41 years ago, there was a stabbing death in Brookfield, Connecticut. It was the town's very first murder. I was the news director of the radio stations in town at the time, I-95 FM and 940 WINE AM. This case, it would turn out, would take on twists and turns like no other case I ever covered. The defendant was said to be innocent because it was actually the devil who controlled the knife that day and not the human. I'm going to tell you this unbelievable story, which continues to generate interest to this very day four decades later, and I'll tell you who played me in the movie about that case. And now, when the devil was accused of murder in Connecticut. Demonic possession. It's a challenging topic to try and discuss. Some people believe in it, others simply dismiss it. Now, a lot of it's housed in your take on religion. Are you devout or are you maybe an atheist? Well, one thing I think we can all agree on is that there are moments of good and bad, and the issue then becomes who's responsible for doing the good or the bad. Is it ourselves? Is it the choices we make? So let's turn it back to February of 1981, 40 years ago. The town of Brookfield, Connecticut had existed for 193 years without anybody ever having been murdered. It's a northern Fairfield County town. It was still relatively sleepy back in 1981. It's big growth years still ahead of it. Now, I was the news director of the radio stations I-95 FM and 941 AM, and it was President's Day, February 16th, 1981, a Monday holiday day off. So I was holding a news department staff meeting on this quiet evening and had turned off the police scanner. Every news department in every radio station and TV station around the country has a police scanner so you can hear what's going on if they pull somebody over, if there's a shooting or, God forbid, some sort of criminal activity. You can hear about it right away and get on top of it. Well, it's also a distraction when you're holding a staff meeting, so we turned it off. Well, a police siren went racing by the station that night. No doubt we figured a car accident up the road, something we'd check out later. The meeting ended, we all went home, and I went to bed early in particular because the morning news guy, which I was, had to be in the next day at 4 a.m. So on my way in the next day, I picked up the local paper, the Danbury News Time, at the place where I usually got my first cup of coffee each day. Well, my eyes nearly popped out of my head when I saw the headline, A Stabbing Death in Brookfield, right when we were having our staff meeting. So I called the Brookfield Police Department, and they read me the following wording, and this is directly from the news release, which I still have in my files. Description of incident, murder, Brookfield Kennels, 519 Federal Road, Brookfield. The accused became involved in a verbal argument with the victim, name being withheld until next of kin is notified, at the Brookfield Kennels. The argument continued outside, at which time an altercation ensued. Witnesses stated that the accused pulled out a knife and stabbed the victim in the chest and abdomen. The accused fled the scene on foot. The Brookfield Fire Department ambulance transported the victim to Danbury Hospital. He was pronounced dead shortly after arrival. The accused was located walking on Silvermine Road, Brookfield. He was arrested at 7.35 p.m. The accused, Arnold Johnson, age 19, 523 Federal Road, Brookfield. Charge, murder. Court, being held for arraignment in Danbury Superior Court. 
So it wasn't really the stabbing death that was unusual in this case, although it was the first murder in Brookfield history. There was also the same night a murder-suicide in a nearby town, and the full moon was coming up the next day. No, but that still wasn't the reason why the case stood out. It turns out that in the following days, the girlfriend of the accused would tell the media, including me, that her boyfriend was actually possessed by the devil, and her backstory was truly one of amazement. Now, before I get into the story, and I, I will tell you the whole thing, I want to explain how much publicity this story has received over the years so you can understand why I'm even focusing on it in this episode. It would become the first and only time in U.S. history that the defense in a murder trial would actually seek to introduce a not guilty plea by reason of demonic possession. Second, the story included two people who were very well known in this area at the time. In fact, they were known nationwide. The late Ed and Lorraine Warren of Monroe, Connecticut. The Warrens were known for investigating stories of demonic possession and the paranormal. Ed was a self-proclaimed demonologist. Lorraine, a self-proclaimed clairvoyant. And I use the term self-proclaimed because I'm frankly unaware of any educational institute that confers these titles upon people. Now, the timing of all this was critical, too, because the movie The Exorcist had been released in 1973, less than 10 years before the stabbing, and there was no internet, there were no cell phones, we did have radio, TV, and movies, and The Exorcist had scared a good portion of the population into thinking that demonic possession was actually relatively routine. Well, in addition, you may have heard of the Amityville horror case on Long Island. That was in the headlines in the public's consciousness at the time. And in that case, a man shot and killed six members of his family in a house in the early 1970s. In fact, he died in prison in 2021. But a family called the Lutz family moved into the house afterwards, apparently unaware of the history. And they allegedly fled the house after experiencing numerous paranormal events. The Warrens and Lorraine were among those who investigated all those events, and their name had risen to prominence in those types of circles as a result. And in addition, you may have heard of the movie recently, The Conjuring 3. It was released in 2021. It was the third installment of stories coming directly from Ed and Lorraine Warren's files, and it featured, yes, the Brookfield stabbing. All right, so what actually happened in the Brookfield case, and what was this amazing backstory? Well, first we have to introduce some of the key players. Arnie Cheyenne Johnson is the accused murderer. Now, he was 19 years old, a native of Bridgeport, Connecticut. His mother and three sisters lived also in Bridgeport. Debbie Glatzell. Glatzell was Johnson's girlfriend. Now, she was part of the Glatzell family of Brookfield, and at age 26, Debbie was seven years older than Johnson. David Glatzell, now David was the youngest of three brothers in the Glatzell family. At the time, he was 11, and he was said to be experiencing fits of demonic possession. Alan Bono. Bono was the 40-year-old manager of the Brookfield Kennels who was stabbed to death. He was single. Martin Manella. Manella was the Waterbury-based attorney who agreed to defend Johnson, and he's the guy who introduced the not guilty defense on the grounds of demonic possession. And Lorraine Warren, we've already introduced them. But other key participants in this story, the Brookfield Police Department, who had been called to the Glatzell home, and the Brookfield Catholic Church held several special religious services. The Warrens called them exorcisms in support of David and the fits that he was experiencing. And Father Francis Virgilac, 
He held the title of Demonologist of the Bridgeport Catholic Diocese. He discussed those services with me, and he denied that they ever rose to the technical level of exorcisms. All right, Debbie Gladsell and Arnie Johnson, they were renting an apartment on the property of the then Brookfield Kettles, which is about a mile from the Gladsell family house on Oak Grove Road at the time. Now, Debbie was grooming the dogs during the day for kennel manager Alan Bono, while her boyfriend Johnson went to work as a tree surgeon, climbing trees, removing branches, where he regularly used a knife as one of his many tools. Now, what follows is his story as told to me on several different occasions by Debbie Glatzell, who has since passed away, but I must say for Debbie's sake, she never changed this story the times that I heard it. In the summer of 1980, half a year before the stabbing, Arnie's mother and sisters decided they wanted to move out of Bridgeport and closer to him in Brookfield, and they were looking to rent a house in Newtown, not too far from the Brookfield border. Well, they were checking out the house when young David Glatzell had stayed behind in a room that had the only furniture remaining from the former tenant, a waterbed. David could be heard crying in that room, and everybody went running back to find him. And when they found him and said, why are you so upset? He said he had been forcibly pushed backwards by a very strong finger that had poked him in the chest, knocking him onto the waterbed. He said he could still see the person who did it. He was standing in the corner. Well, everybody else turned and nobody could see anything else in the corner. They had a Polaroid camera with them, took a photo of the corner and said to David, is the person still visible in the photo? And he said, yes. He then traced the figure on the photo and he said it was still in the room, just standing there looking at him. The object he traced had two long ears, similar to a donkey. His feet looked like stubs. So they asked David to describe the person. What was he wearing, that sort of thing. And he said he had on a red and black checkered shirt, like a lumberjack shirt, and blue jeans. And they asked, well, what kind of shoes was he wearing? He paused and said, well, he wasn't wearing shoes because he didn't have any feet. He had hooves. From that point onward, Debbie claimed that matters got progressively worse in the family. Her brother David said that the man had followed him back to their home in Brookfield, and for several months she said that her brother would experience fits mainly overnight at around midnight, where he would have to be physically restrained. His voice would change into somebody else's. There would be loud, unexplained noises occurring throughout the house, and objects even levitated. Well, Debbie told me that they contacted the Brookfield Catholic Church and that Father James Dennis had suggested that they call in Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were active in these kinds of paranormal activities. Well, the Warrens were brought into the case towards the latter part of 1980. They interviewed family members and suggested that everybody tape record and photograph these sessions with David to make sure they have something for the record. Well, they did this, and in fact, I still have copies of one of the audio tapes from one of those supposed demonic possession fits. I'm not going to play it on this podcast in deference to the boy who was involved, who's now an adult. I will say that they are very disturbing to listen to, and they could also be explained by any of a number of circumstances, and so I'll withhold my judgment as to my opinion on what caused the utterances until later. Again, according to the story that Debbie Glatzell told me, the situation became incredibly more complicated one night during one of the young boy's fits. She says that Arnie Johnson placed a cross on David's forehead and shouted for the devil to leave the boy and instead take him on, Johnson, because he said he was strong enough to fight the devil, not this little boy. 
Well, the Warrens flatly pointed to this specific instance as the turning point in the case. They said that Arnie Johnson should have never challenged the devil, and he says it was at that point that the devil obliged Johnson and entered him and began then several weeks of torment, ending with the stabbing death of Alan Bono. Well, Debbie told me that her boyfriend continued to exhibit more and more signs of having succumbed to demonic possession from that evening on. Among the several stories was one in which Johnson allegedly awoke one night from a deep sleep and drove his fist through a set of dresser drawers next to the bed, an exhibition of superhuman strength that had scared her and frankly worried her. She said Johnson had not been consciously aware of what he had done. Well, according to various sources, three special religious services were held in Brookfield in the months between the original waterbed incident and the stabbing. I tracked down Father Francis Virgilac, who was stationed at the Villa Maria Guadalupe Retreat in Stamford. His title was Demonologist for the Bridgeport Catholic Diocese. Now, we spoke openly and, frankly, quite bluntly about exorcisms and the Catholic Church's position on the use of that particular service. Father Virgilac explained to me that the actual rites of exorcism are not frequently used. They're known as the Ritual Romano, and they require sign-off at a very high level within the church, and they are not to be used lightly. He claimed that the services that were held in Brookfield were not Ritual Romano services. He said that oftentimes when a member of the church family is facing these types of difficulties— Special services will be organized to give the family some comfort, even if they are not formal exorcisms. He chose his words very carefully with me, but he clearly conveyed the message that the church is not in the business of casting out demons, as some had suggested was happening in Brookfield at the time. On the contrary, he said the services were designed to kind of bring a sense of peace and tranquility to the family, while also recognizing the frightening circumstances that the family was experiencing. The Warrens would respond to this by telling me that they had been to exorcisms before, and the church could say whatever it wanted, but that the services that were held were, without a doubt in their mind, exorcisms performed by the Catholic Church. Well, on Monday, February 16, 1981, it was a day off for President's Day. Arnie Johnson did not go to work that day. Instead, Arnie, his sisters, kennel manager Alan Bono, and Debbie Glatzell had gone out to a lunch at a restaurant that was near the kennels called Mug and Munch on Federal Road. I knew the waitress who served them that day, and she told me she had to cut them off because they had been drinking to the point, in her opinion, of inebriation. From the restaurant, it was a short walk down Federal Road back to the kennels, and that evening, the drinking apparently continued in the kennel office, particularly on the part of the manager, Alan Bono, whose reported blood alcohol level following his death was markedly above the established limit for operating a motor vehicle, for instance. Now, Debbie told me that she wanted to leave, and she felt Alan was becoming obnoxious, and She didn't want Johnson's three young sisters subjected to all this. As they were leaving, Alan grabbed one of them by the arm and an argument ensued. Arnie left to run back to his and Debbie's apartment while the others got away from Alan and ran out to the parking lot of the kennels. Alan followed them and Johnson returned to the scene. There, Debbie and the sisters would later tell police that Johnson pulled out a knife and stabbed Bono to death before discarding the blade and running from the scene. Now, the Warrens insist that Johnson was innocent and found Waterbury attorney Martin Manella, who agreed to take the case. 
I had spoken with a priest in England who had been allowed to testify there at an arson trial for a defendant, claiming that the boy had been suffering from demonic possession. Well, the boy got off with just probation after the demonic possession evidence was heard. Manella reportedly went to England to meet with this priest himself and later agreed to push the issue of demonic possession in court on behalf of Johnson. It was, of course, a high-risk legal strategy since such a defense had never been tried before in a U.S. court of law, at least in part because there were no grounds for using demonic possession as a defense under U.S. law. Well, the day came when Judge Robert Callahan would have to make his decision on whether to allow this unique defense, and I was in court that day. So were the Catholic priests, the ones who had participated at these special religious ceremonies and had reportedly seen and heard many inexplicable things. They were in the row right in front of me. Judge Callahan offered to let Manila change the plea to not guilty by reason of insanity, but Manila refused. He said, demonic possession and insanity are two different things, and his client was not insane. He was demonically possessed. As soon as it became clear that demonic possession would not be allowed in the courthouse, the priests in front of me stood up almost in unison, turned to the right, walked out of the courthouse, and that was the last we ever heard from them on this case. And without the ability to enter the stories of demonic possession as evidence, Johnson's case ended with his conviction on manslaughter charges. He was sentenced to 20 years, but released after serving five. While in prison, he married Debbie Glatzel in a step that itself received a fair amount of publicity. Well, months after the verdict was handed down, I was approached by a screenwriter. He'd been hired by Dick Clark, the same guy who ushered in New Year's Eve for so many years before passing away a while back. Well, he wanted to write a made-for-TV movie script for the case. He knew I had covered it and was familiar with the details, and he wanted to sign me up as a script consultant to go to Hollywood and be on the set as the movie was made to ensure its accuracy. And there was a catch. I would need to share all of my information, including any off-the-record details I had learned while speaking with Catholic priests, Brookfield police officers, and any others who knew about important aspects of the case. Well, I had to decline. People had told me things in confidence that I simply couldn't share. When the cast for the movie was finally announced, my crosstown rival at the Danbury News Times, Ruth Lockwood, got to be played by Cloris Leachman. I was played by the late Ken Kershaw. Now, you may have known of Kershaw because he played Cliff Barnes in the famous sitcom called Dallas with Larry Hagman. Other notables in the movie, starring as Arnie Johnson, was a relative newcomer on the Hollywood scene. In fact, one of his very first movies, a guy you know named Kevin Bacon, playing the role of Ed Warren, Andy Griffith, and Father Francis Vergelac was played by Eddie Albert. That wraps up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. So what do I think? Was the devil active in Brookfield that day? I'll say this much. There were numerous inexplicable incidents that happened, some to me personally, that certainly were very odd and did in fact make me stop and think. But that's actually the problem with this story. If I wanted to, I could build a case to support demonic possession, or I could make a case that would completely dismiss it. There is evidence on both sides. So I suppose you have to be the judge and decide for yourself what you really believe. 
Next week on Amazing Tales CT, the incredible story behind the making of Connecticut's largest lake, Candlewood Lake. It's really nothing more than a very big hydroelectric plant, and wait until you hear how it was done. Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Thank you.